Fathers, we come today and uh, we look at this text in Revelation about uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Lord, just open our hearts and our spiritual eyes today and just give us a glimpse of what a glorious day that's going to be, Lord, when we meet you in the air and this wedding begins. And uh, Lord, uh, already we, we know that uh, you've sealed us with your spirit. Uh, we're engaged to be your forever bride. And Lord, uh, just there's just so many uh, great truths in this text today, so much good news in this text today. I, uh, I just ask that uh, you be our guide through this scripture, and Lord, you help us to, to see the things that uh, you have in store for us. Lord, we, we just thank you that uh, you sent your son to die for our sins, Lord, that uh, forever uh, we will live in a relationship with you as, as our father and our friend and Lord, our God, and we're, we're so blessed. Father, I just ask that uh, you communicate all of this good news in this text today. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who has not received Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, encourage them to, to make today the day of their salvation. Father, we just ask you for a blessing again on our study. We ask that in the name of Jesus. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. I've got some really good news for you today. We're about to leave some of the most difficult material in the Bible, and we're going to head into some really encouraging passages. Uh, and i got to tell you, not a minute too soon. Uh, I consider myself an optimist, but uh, after going through the minor prophets and going through the hard part of Revelation, you can get to be a pessimist pretty quick, and you can start uh, seeing things only on the negative side of things. Uh, uh, I don't want to be like that. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Boudreaux's friend. I don't know if you ever heard about Boudreaux's friend, but he had this friend who was the quintessential pessimist. I mean, he just walked around with a cloud over his head all the time. I mean, he saw everything from a negative viewpoint. And Boudreaux wanted to cheer him up, and so he took him hunting. And Boudreaux had a hunting dog that walked on water. So he knew that was going to cheer him up when he saw this dog walking on water. So he takes, uh, Boudreaux takes his friend out hunting, and sure enough, they kill the first duck, and the dog goes out, walks right out on the water, and he gets the duck, and he walks right back off the water, and he brings the duck in. And they did that all day long, but the guy's face, countenance never changed. He still had this long face. And so on the way home, Boudreaux asked him, he said, didn't you notice something different about my dog? And the, his friend said, yeah, he can't swim. Well, before we all end up like Boudreaux's friend, uh, I want to take us today through, get us out of this judgment stuff, and uh, we want to head into some of the most exciting material in the Bible. So let's pick up beginning in chapter number 19 and verse number 1, and let's, let's read about all this good news that God has in store for us. So pick up with me in, in verse number 1. And... Uh, John says, after these things, after what things? After all of this judgment we've been seeing, after the fall of Mystery Babylon, the e e economic system of Mystery Babylon, the religious system of Mystery Babylon, uh, the, and we're going to see the fall of the political uh, system of Babylon a little bit later on, not today, but in, in this text in chapter 19. But after all of these things, listen to what happens. He said, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And I believe that's a multitude of angels and a multitude of saints. 
And they're saying, now I believe they're singing because the word saying there, you, it just means to bring forth words so you could, it can be in a song. And I have no doubt here that, uh, hey, there aren't any pessimists in heaven. Everybody who gets to heaven is an optimist. And, and you can't help but sing when you get to heaven. And so all of these people are singing together. And what are they singing? Hey, a song we all know, hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise Jehovah. Salvation, watch this, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. To him alone belongs, to him alone belongs salvation. Why? Because he alone has saved us. He alone has removed the wicked from this earth. He's brought down this uh, great harlot called Babylon. He alone has saved the world. He tread the wine press on his own. And so he gets all glory. He gets all honor. He gets all power. Now that's a song we already already know because whenever we say the, recite the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that should be a part of our daily prayers where we recognize that all of this belongs to the Lord, that our lives belong to the Lord. What's good in our life uh, belongs to the Lord. And so we give him all glory and honor and praise. At this point in history, when Babylon has fallen, uh, the pride of mankind has been broken. And no longer does man lift itself above God God is put in his proper place, and we all sing out hallelujah. And that song continues in verse number two. And listen to what, he, what they sing. It's, they sing, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Now, if an unbeliever comes to Revelation, and you hear this all the time, or you see this all the time, and they read chapters 11 through 18, sometimes they come away and they say, you know, God doesn't seem just. He doesn't seem fair. How could a loving God destroy all these wonderful cities and all of these wonderful uh, people? And the reason it doesn't seem fair to some of us is that when we judge a matter in our courts, uh, justice isn't always served. And why is that so? Because we don't always know all of the facts. We don't know everything. But let me tell you about God. He knows all the facts. He sees everything. He sees everything every person on this earth does. He's seen everything every person on this earth has ever done. He knows what the good people do. do and he knows the bad that people do. He knows the sins that we've committed, and he knows what's in our hearts, and he knows what's in our minds. And so he knows exactly how to judge a situation. And so true and righteous are his judgments because he's had all the knows all the facts, and he's judged this harlot fairly. Now, in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this great harlot that we see judged in the book of Revelation isn't just an organization that rises up in the great tribulation. This great harlot has existed since the day that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. 
since that time, uh, there's been a system of antichrist, a system of government that has rebelled against God, and it's corrupted the world and by lifting mankind up above God, at least in their own eyes. And whenever we lift ourselves above God, then we become wicked all the way to the core of our being, and that's really what's happened throughout history. And whenever people are wicked to the core, what are they going to do to the people of God? They're going to persecute the people of God. And that's why he says here he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her throughout history. Throughout history, the great harlot has shed the blood of the saints. They've persecuted the saints, and now the saints are avenged for all of this persecution. And again, so they sing again, they sing in verse number three, hallelujah, praise Yahweh, because her smoke rises up forever and ever. In other words, when Babylon is no more, her smoke is still going to rise up forever and ever and ever as a reminder forever that the wicked are no more. Then in verse number four, and the 24 elders who represent the church or the saints and the four living creatures who represent the creation, they fell down and they worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. What's it mean, amen? So be it, so be it. Or you could say, the Lord do so. Or you could say, or the Lord is just in whatever he does. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise Yahweh. I guarantee you, when you get to heaven, you won't be questioning the, the righteous judgments of God. We will all be singing, Amen. Hallelujah. And then in verse number five, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our, praise our God, all you his servants, and all those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a great voice of a great multitude, all the angels and all the saints singing, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise Jehovah. Now watch this praise here, it's, it's unique. It says, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now what's it mean that the Lord is omnipotent? It means that the Lord has all power. Not only is the Lord omniscient, I mean omnipotent, he's omniscient. That means he knows all things. He's omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere. But here's what they praise him for. They praise him for the fact that he's omnipotent and that his omnipotent reigns. Now, he has all power now. God never is not omnipotent. So why do we wait to this point to praise God for his omnipotence, because his omnipotence at this point reigns. And I can tell you, that's going to be a really, really good thing, as President Trump would say. It's going to be a beautiful thing. I mean, you're going to love it when omnipotence reigns on this earth. In, the dis in this dispensation in which we live, God has relinquished certain powers and authorities to mankind. And what have we done with things? We've made a big mess of them. But that's going to change when the millennium begins, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, omnipotence is going to rule and reign forever. I'm going to tell you what, Jesus Christ is a despot. That means he is an absolute dictator. When he gets here, he's going to use his power to rule and reign this earth with a rod of iron. 
things are going to be his way. If you don't like him now, you're not going to want to be here in the millennium. You're not going to want to be here in eternity. But if you like him now, and he has all power, and all that power is going to reign on this earth, and he's going to take that power, and he's going to use that power to bring goodness on this earth, he's going to use that power to bring truth and righteousness on this earth, he's going to use that power uh, to bring blessing on this earth instead of a curse on this earth. He's going to use that power to rid this world of wickedness. He's going to use that power to, to, to make this earth absolutely a utopian place to be. I mean, what are we going to shout? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, you think that's not good. It gets even better in verse number 7. Look at what happens now. He says, let us be glad and rejoice. In other words, if you're a saint of God, there is no reason for you to ever be pessimistic. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him all glory. Here's the reason. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ. Who's he going to marry? He's going to marry you and me. Or you and I. I forget which way you're supposed to say that. It's one of those. He's going to marry us. We're going to be his bride. We're going to be united uh, to him in marriage. And you talk about a time of great rejoicing and gladness. That's going to be it. Uh, I have no doubt that when Jesus chose to use this uh, metaphor of a wedding to describe his eternal relationship with us, that he had the Jewish wedding in mind. Uh, the wedding, the, the wedding customs, customs that were in place at the time of the Lord. And, and let me go through those real quick, and you'll get the picture of what you, what you have when you have the wedding supper of the Lamb. The first step in the Jewish wedding was the betrothal. And that, what we would call maybe in our uh, lingo, the engagement period. And it began with a marriage contract. And what would happen at that point, the groom would go to the father and he would pay a price for the bride. They called that a dowry. And they would enter into a contract, and the contract really was between the father and it was between the groom. And he would pay a price for that bride, bride and they would be as good as married they would be legally married at that point the only thing that they wouldn't engage in at that point as far as marital activities they wouldn't engage in sexual activities at that point so the total bliss of marriage they wouldn't experience at that point but for all legal purposes they would be married now think about that isn't that exactly what takes place in our engagement you know where you're at right now you're not married to Christ. Now, positionally you are, but you're not there yet. You're engaged to Jesus Christ. He paid a dowry for you. You know what the dowry he paid was? He, you paid his blood. Amen. The author of Hebrews tell us, tells us that Jesus entered the heavenly places, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood so that we could be perfected forever, so that we could be made his perfect bride. And so he's paid our dowry. 
And when we receive Christ, on the day you receive Jesus Christ into your heart, you became engaged to the Lord. You were engaged to the Lord. I mean, you're his. And you, you he paid the price. He, he, he paid the price to the Father. And the Father arranged a contract between you and him. And it is an everlasting contract. And when you receive Jesus Christ, you got an engagement ring. Now, I know all about engagement rings because this year, Nathan, I gave one to my wife too, but I, I, my memory's short. So I was reminded this year about engagement rings when Nathan gave an engagement ring to Blair. And boy, was she glowing when she got that ring. She's still glowing. But now here's the problem. In a human relationship, we don't have any problem with Blair or Nathan, but here's, here, this could be a problem. Let's say Nathan at some point, doesn't want to be married to Blair between now and October. Time's running out, Nathan. <laughs> and Nathan decides, I don't want to be married to Blair. That's not going to happen because we would kill him if that happened. <laughs> but we wouldn't have to kill him because Blair would have already killed him. But he's not going to do, any of that, do that anyway because he loves Blair. But legally, he could break that contract. But when you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you were given that engagement ring, that seal of the Spirit, that's, there's a metaphor there too, because whenever a king sealed something, that seal could never be broken. So when God gave you his Holy Spirit, you were sealed to be the bride of Christ, and you were sealed forever, and that seal can never be broken. Now, we want to talk about the second step in the Jewish wedding. And... and or in the process, of the marriage process. It, this took place usually a year later, but at least a year later, at midnight on the day of the wedding. It took place, and the groom, along with a procession of his friends, they're carrying these lamps, and they make their way to the bride's house on the way to the groom's house. And it's at night, and they're carrying these lanterns, and so you have this procession of light, this beautiful procession of light. Now, the bride... And her attendants know that the groom is coming. And so she makes herself ready for the groom. And so she's prepared when he arrives. And when he arrives, the bride and her party join the procession and they go to the groom's home for the wedding supper of the groom. Now, I have no doubt that that metaphor there, that picture there, is a grand picture of the rapture and what takes place at the rapture. When, we, when, those, when, when, when the groom's party approaches the bride's house in a Jewish wedding, they, the party shouts out, the groom has arrived. And one day, very, very soon, we're going to hear a shout and we're going to hear the trumpet blow and that's going to announce the arrival of the groom to pick up his bride. And he's picking up his bride in this procession of light because when you meet him in the air, you're going to be given this glorious body of light and you're going to be carried away to the groom's, to the Father's house, to the Father's house in heaven for the wedding supper of the Lamb. You talk about a glorious day. Now, the secret is you want to be ready. If you're not ready, then you're going to get left behind. 
You remember, that's what, exactly what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the ten virgins, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And the groom came and the five foolish virgins did nothing to prepare. And since they began, did nothing to prepare, what, then they didn't go to the father's house. They didn't go to the, the groom's uh, wedding supper. Now, what were they to do to prepare? What were they to do? What, what was missing? What, what did they not do that caused them to be left out? They didn't fill their lamps with oil. What's oil represent in the, in the Bible? It represents the Holy Spirit. And so uh, when, when, what Jesus says at the end of the parable, he says, hey, they're left out. They're knocking on the door, and they're not let in. And this is what the groom says to them. He says, I do not know you. I do not know you. Now, to me, those are the scariest words in the Bible. If you hear those words one day from Jesus, let me tell you what, you ought to be scared because you're in deep trouble. There are a lot of people who are going to hear those words because they've never truly entered into a marital relationship. They've never truly been engaged to the Lord. They've stayed engaged to the world the whole time, and they've never entered into that relationship. And so when, they, when the time comes for the wedding supper of the Lamb, they're not going to be let in, and the words that they're going to hear are, I do not know you. And those are very, very scary words. Now, those, if you know the Lord, if you're engaged to the Lord, you will never hear those words. Because if you know the Lord, then you long for the Lord to come and you prepare for the Lord to come. And how do you get ready? How do you get ready? You put on that garment of righteousness, your self-righteousness, right? No. The righteousness that God gives you when you get engaged to the Lord. Turn with me for a minute. Hold your place there in Revelation and turn back to Isaiah. And go with me over to Isaiah Chapter 61, you know, I read this all the time, and you've heard me read it to you before, but sometimes it's just good to, to, for you to read the passage with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but, but go with me to Isaiah chapter 61, right, kind of in the middle of the Bible, you'll find a big book of Isaiah. Go to chapter 61, and look down at verse number 10, and, and Isaiah has reached the point of the wedding supper of the Lamb at this point, and and listen to what he says in verse number 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He says, my soul shall be joyful in my God. For I haven't clothed myself. Watch this. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's your wedding gown. The garments of salvation. His righteousness. That's what you will wear. Those pure lily white garments of light that he's going to give you. He gives us. He's, well, when we're engaged, we get, a, a, we get a portion of that, and we're positionally made righteous, but when you get to heaven, you're going to be wearing light, garments of light and, and garments of righteousness. He has covered us with the robe of righteousness or the dress of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself out with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now back to Revelation. And, and so... Not only are we given garments of righteousness, we're given the Spirit of God. 
And so your lamp, if you have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is sealed on your soul, and that Spirit will never depart from you, then you will always, now you might not have a full lamp when Jesus comes. It would be a good idea to have a full lamp. And I used to think that parable was teaching that if you, if you weren't full of the Spirit when Jesus came, then you're going to be left behind. That's not true. Because he says, what does he say to the virgins, the five foolish virgins? He says, I do not know you. Let me tell you what, if you've been sealed with the Spirit, God knows you. And you might be pretty weak Christian, and you might be, you ain't going to care when you get there. I mean, you might care when we get to the beam of seat, and, and maybe you miss out on a few rewards. But i got to tell you something, everybody's going to love heaven. And everybody's going to be blessed in heaven. And everybody's going to be there if they've been sealed with the Spirit of God. And, and we're given these robes of righteousness, and, and at times we're going to dirty those robes of righteousness, but we know that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so in God's eyes, when you're picked up for that wedding, you're going to be pure, perfectly white. And your garment's going to be perfectly righteous. Now, the third part of the Jewish wedding uh, is the marriage supper of the groom. You get a little bit of a picture of that over in John chapter 2 uh, at the wedding of Cana. Now, if you know anything about the wedding of Cana, one thing you know is it was a wild, I don't want to say a wild party, but it certainly was a long party because they ran out of wine. So we know that this is going to be a long party. I mean, it's going to be a long wedding feast. Now, we, how long is it going to be? I personally think seven years. And because we know when it ends. We know it ends when the bride returns with Christ to the earth to rule and reign at the beginning of the millennium. Uh, we'll see that at the last part of chapter number 19. I personally believe it begins with the rapture. So if it begins with the rapture, and the rapture takes place at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the beginning of those seven years, then the, the, then the wedding feast is going to last seven years. I mean seven years. You talk about a long party. Seven years we'll be partying with the Lord. And we're, we're not going to be on earth where they keep time. We're going to be in eternity where they don't keep time. So it'll last as long as the Lord wants it to last. It'll last probably as long as you want it to last. I don't know if we'll ever want it to stop. So the guy's going to say, guys, put it. All right, get ready now. We've got to go back to earth and do some, do some work now. But uh, all of us are going to be, man, this party's too good. I don't want to leave. But uh, at some point, we will, we will, we will have to, to uh, leave. Now, let's go on to verse number 8. And you see some more of this good news here. Verse number 8. And to her, to the bride... It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean, perfectly white, and bright, uh, luminous. It, it has, it's full of light, the glory of God. For the fine linen is, their, is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, don't take that wrong. You've got to put that in context with the rest of Scripture. It's not our self-righteous acts. What does Isaiah have to say about our self-righteous acts? Over in Isaiah 64, he says, All our acts, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags to the Lord. Uh, actually, it's 
what righteous acts is he talking about then? He's talking about the righteous acts that we do by the Spirit of God. I mean, we're given these perfect, beautiful garments. We're given this glorious light. We've been, for now, we've been sealed with the Spirit of God. And uh, those, the Spirit of God, as we're filled with the Spirit of God, uh, the Spirit of God produces good works through us. Those are the righteous acts that show forth our glory to the rest of the world. Those are the, act, the, the works that God wants us to do in order to win others to Jesus Christ. But they're only valid, they're only of worth if they're done by the power of the Spirit of God. You go out and try to do your own righteous acts on your own, and nothing more than filthy rags unto the Lord. And so he's talking about those righteous acts that, uh, that, uh, that we do uh, with our uh, lives that emanate the righteousness of God. I've got to ask you something. I mean, what, what bride, what bride puts on her wedding dress and then goes, I mean, I wouldn't want to marry this girl. She goes out and she rolls around in mud. She's not going to do that, is she? I mean, what, I mean, she's going to keep that dress spotless until the wedding. And God has clothed us with these robes of righteousness. And we're not, we don't, we don't want to, I mean, if you want to go roll around in the mud, if you want to go back to the pig pen of this life and roll around with the pigs and, and the wicked, you can do that. But I, I got to question whether or not you're truly born again because you have no desire to do that if you're a child of God. You've been made perfectly clean and you hate, Filthiness. You hate the filthiness of this world. You hate wickedness. And you don't want to do things that are wicked. Now, you might every once in a while get a little spot on your dress. But, you're gonna, but, but man, what's the bride going to do if she sees a little spot on her dress? She's going to do everything she can to get that clean before the wedding. And so you're going to want to fix that. You want to, by the power of the Spirit of God, you're going to want to be made perfectly white. And you want to be ready when the Lord comes. That's Part of being ready is that we're living righteously before the Lord when he comes. And it's not our righteousness that saves us. We, we, we are righteous because we're saved. We've been saved and we want to live righteously. We don't want to waller in the mud anymore. And then in verse number 9, he says, Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those... Now, this is a really, really uh, pregnant word, blessed. Let me put it that way. It is full of, of meaning. It, it, it means to be as happy as you possibly can be. I mean, it, it, to have happiness all the way into the inner parts of your soul. I mean, I, mean you could, I guess you could say, oh, how happy are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, you could translate that word invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are really invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, whenever a bride and groom send out their invitations, they send out their invitations to a lot of people. And they realize that some of those people, and they're kind of hoping this is true, some of those people aren't going to come to their wedding. They've got to send them to them anyway, but some uncle that they really don't like way off in nowhere who doesn't really like them, they know he's not going to come, but out of courtesy, they send him an invitation. So they send out a lot of invitations. They might send out 300 invitations and expect 150 of their real friends and relatives to show up. Those are the people that they really have invited. 
Now, they invite others, but those are the ones that they've really invited. And that's kind of a picture of what we see right here because, because uh, many are invited. I mean, the, the invitation has gone out into the whole world. I mean, he, Jesus said, go into the byways. The Jews had rejected him. He said, go everywhere and just, just declare the gospel and, and invite everybody to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so everybody, everybody in this world has been invited. But as Jesus said in Matthew 22, 14, many are called, many are invited, but few are really invited. Few are chosen. In other words, the gospel has gone out into the whole world, but only a few have been chosen to receive the gospel. So only the chosen are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, wait a minute. That's, you sound like a hyper-Calvinist. I know you're not a hyper-Calvinist, George, are you? No, I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. And I don't believe in hyper-Calvinists. I believe in the free will of man. I also believe in the choice of God. I believe in the omniscience of God. The reason God sends out his invitation and he calls those special people, he calls everybody in general, but there's a certain group of people who are chosen. He knows that those people are going to receive that invitation. They're going to want to come to that wedding. They want to be the bride of Christ. They accept the proposal of Christ. They want to be with Christ forever. And he knows those people. Well, am I chosen? Well, if you're chosen... uh, I mean, if you receive Christ, then guess what? You were chosen. When were you chosen? You were chosen in him, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, you don't know it when, when you first receive it, when you first hear the invitation. You're asked to marry Christ. You're asked to be the bride of Christ. You're asked to enter into a relationship with Christ. You don't know at that point that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, but Christ knew you were going to choose to accept that invitation, and so he chose you and him before the foundation of the world. If he knows you're going to reject that invitation, he knew before the foundation of the world you were going to reject that, reject that invitation. But he's still in love. God loves the whole world. He sends out that invitation to the whole world, and only a few receive Christ and accept that invitation. Then verse number 10. I love this passage. Now, here you got this picture. You got this picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And John's at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he hears all of these beautiful praise songs going on. And there's this one person, and he comes over and he talks to him. He talks to him about the invitation. He talks to him about, uh, he says, Blessed are those who call to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these sayings of, uh, uh, these are the true sayings of God. And then he he hears this guy, and he looks at this guy, and what does he do in verse number 10? He says, I fell at his feet to worship him. He sees this member of this group, this multitude, singing to the Lord, and he comes and talks to John, and when John sees him, what does he do? He falls on his feet to worship him. Now watch what this guy says. He said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Now, who does that make this guy? That makes him part of the bride. He's a member of the church. He's a brother or sister in Christ. He's a brother because he says, I'm of your brethren. Well, he could be a sister, I guess. It's a brother or sister of Christ. And he says to him, don't worship me. Worship God 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me say that one more time. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the word of God. This whole word, the whole word of God is about Jesus Christ. I was listening to Brandon Wednesday night when he was going through 1 Kings. And, and I, you know, I'm kind of watching him to see if I need to fire him or let him keep going or not. And I'm listening to it. And he's bringing Christ, looking for Christ in that text. He saved his job at least for another week. Because I'm, I'm impressed with that. I'm, I didn't ask him to do that. But if you have spiritual discernment in the word of God, then you don't invent pictures of Christ in the Bible. They're there for the taking. All you have to do is look because the spirit of the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I want to go back just a minute to this fascinating scene. I mean, look, look what it, this scene is playing out right here. I mean, John sees somebody so magnificent that he wants to worship him. And that person is just like John's going to be when he's glorified. He's just like we're going to be when we're glorified. I've used this quote on several occasions, so you've heard me say it before, and you might have read it yourself. But, but C.S. Lewis once wrote about the glorified Christian. He said, if you could see the person next, sitting in the pew next to you in their glorified state, you would fall down at this moment, and you would worship them. Maybe Roy. Now, that, I don't know about that. I won't go too far with this, but. Can you imagine worshiping Roy? I'm going to tell you right now, if we could see Roy, I mean, if, if we could see Roy right now in his glory, we would all be on our knees and we would worship him. Roy would have to say the same thing this guy. Hey, don't worship me. Worship God. Worship Jesus Christ. You know, that's why John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. You've been, you've been made a child of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been made the future bride of Jesus Christ. You are engaged to Jesus Christ. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, but it has not yet been, been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we will... See, we shall see him as he is. You remember when Peter and James and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus in his glorified state. Now, I think there are stages of glory, glorified state for Jesus Christ. I think when we see Jesus glorified, we see him glorified as God the Father uh, with all the presence of the Godhead and in, in, in dwelling in him. I think we're going to see a Jesus like you see in chapter 1 of Revelation. But I think over eternity, Jesus is going to be much like we are. Because when we see him, we're going to be just like him. And I believe he's going to be in that state that, they, that these disciples saw him in when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But you look at, look at who was there with him. There was Moses and Elijah, and they were glorified too. And when the disciples saw him, they wanted to worship them. And Peter, you know, Peter always sticking his foot in his mouth. He said, let us build three tabernacles. And in other words, we want three places of worship. Let us build three places of worship because we want to stay here. We want to worship all three of you, and we don't ever want to leave. And God had to come speak to him from heaven, and he said, Peter, shut up again. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. 
listen to Jesus. And when he said listen to Jesus, he really was saying worship Jesus. Hear him. He's God. These aren't God. And so, so uh, uh, beloved, we're not, we are now the children of God, but we don't have a clue of what we're going to look like when we're in glory. And then he finishes this verse up and he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, let me reword that. The good news of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of the Bible, the spirit of revelation, the spirit of the minor prophets is not doom and gloom. The spirit of, of, of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is good news. Let me tell you what prophecy is all about. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ in eternity. It's about Jesus Christ dying on a cross. It's about Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead. It's about Jesus Christ ascending to heaven. It's about Jesus Christ uh, preparing a place for his bride. It's about the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's about judgment. But the judgment is to remove the wicked from this earth so that at his second coming, Jesus Christ can establish his perfect kingdom of truth and righteousness on this earth. And so it is all good news. You, we have no reason to ever approach this word. I had somebody tell me the other day, man, maybe you ought to preach more topical sermons. You know, I don't have to preach topical. There's topics. There's a million topics right here in this word. And let me tell you what, I'm not ashamed to teach the good news of the Bible. It is full of good news. It's full of good news. And if people don't like it, lump it, all I say. I mean, I, I mean, I, if you don't like it, if you don't like the Word of God, then we're, Jesus said this about the Word. He said it is spirit and it is life. It's in the word that you receive the life of God. I mean, it's, in, it, it's in the word that you receive the spirit of God. It's, in, it's by the spirit that you receive the word of God. All of it goes together. And so you've got to be in the word. And you've got to stay in the word. Whether you do it on your own or you, whether you do it, whether you do it uh, here at church. You really need to do it at both places. We need to be in the word because the spirit the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And the spirit of prophecy is good news. Revelation is not a book of doom and gloom. It's a book of good news. I can't help but I mean, I know we went through some tough parts because there is the judgment of the wicked, and that is truth, and it is coming. But this book is all about good news. We found that when we were in the Old Testament, and we went through all of the minor prophets. I mean, we went through every single one of them. We didn't miss one. And when we went through those minor prophets, let me tell you what, there's a lot of judgment. But where were they heading? Every single one of them were heading to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the millennium on this earth and eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's where they all were heading. And that is good news. It's, it's all about an optimistic viewpoint. I mean, there's not pessimism in the Bible. It is it's, it's pessim pessimism for those who are wicked. But for those of us who know Christ, we can't have anything but an optimistic viewpoint of the Bible. I said enough about that, didn't I? <laughs> you know, I believe the Lord is coming 
very, very soon. Uh, you know, I'm not predicting dates, but when I was a little boy, and I put a little bit about this in the bulletin today, you might have already read it, but when I was a little boy, my mom at dinner time would yell out. She wouldn't say supper's ready. She would yell out, supper's almost ready. It's almost ready. Sometimes that really almost was the wrong word because it took a long time. But that, those words were sweet words to me because my mom was a really good cook. And I loved to eat. Still do. And when I heard her say, supper's almost ready, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to go get myself ready for supper. Because my dad wasn't going to let me sit at that table if my hands weren't washed and my clothes were dirty and I had my baseball cap on and some of those things, I had to be ready for supper if I wanted to eat. My wife now says the same thing. Supper's almost ready when it's ready. And she's a really good cook. And I can, st- I can wear my baseball cap and I can do some things that I could do with my dad. But one way or the other, I do wash my hands. I still wash my hands. I get ready. And it's almost if now we've reached a point where I hear the Lord's voice and he's saying, supper's almost ready. I mean, the time's here. And real soon, we're going to hear the midnight cry and the trumpet's going to be blown. And we're going, to join, we're going to join him in the air in that great light parade in the sky as he takes us home with him to his father's house for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're going to party with him for seven years. And you don't want to miss it. Everybody in this room, every single one of you, have been invited. The question is, have you been chosen? In a strange way, you being chosen by God is up to you. If you've accepted Christ, and, and I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even like that word, accept Christ, because Christ doesn't need our acceptance. But if you've accepted his proposal, if his invitation to be his bride, then I got news for you. You're chosen. And I'll tell you when you were chosen. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. If you haven't accepted that invitation, there's still time. And that's all you have to do. All you have to do is to receive Christ, to choose Christ, to choose to dwell with him forever, to choose for him to be your king and your Lord and your God and your father and your counselor and your brother and your friend. He wants to be all of those things, and all you have to do is choose. 
And when you, cho when you choose, you too will find that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Supper's almost ready. The question is, are you ready? I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm waiting to hear that trumpet blow really, really soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the good news of your word. We thank you for the great hope we have in Jesus Christ. Or what a heart you have for your people that, that you would open up heaven to a bunch of rebels, Lord. People who have rejected you, who have lived wicked lives, who have sinned against you. And Lord, yet you've opened up heaven for us. But we know, Lord, that there's only one way. And that's that we receive Christ as our Savior and as our God, as our groom. Lord, that we choose to dwell with him forever, to live in his house forever, under his rules forever. Lord, what blessings there are. Oh, how happy are those who receive you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't, hasn't truly made that choice yet, Lord, let today be the day of their salvation. Touch their heart in a special way. Open up their eyes to get a vision of what's in store for those who truly know you. Lord, we long for that age when truth and righteousness reign on this earth. But even more so, we long for an age when we're with you in your presence. Oh, God, what a blessed day that will be. We just thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.